How's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 210, and I FaceTimed with Chauncey Bowers, and Chauncey is an extraordinarily fascinating human being. Um, he's a retired research scientist. He's a troubadour, a brilliant singer-songwriter. He reminds me of if Hunter S. Thompson and Leonard Cohen, like a, a, a less high, <laughs> not that Chauncey was high, but just there was something about him that reminded me of Hunter S. Uh, and the way he, his thought processes and his uh, his philosophy, the the way he thinks about the world. Uh, if that combination with um, Leonard Cohen combination with a little bit my dad, to be honest, just because my dad and I have these really f- cool conversations that go all over the place about everything from philosophy to science to music and art, and uh, it reminded me of that a bit, too. So anyway, very cool dude, and was very happy to, to, to be able to have this conversation with him. We cover all sorts of topics, a lot of science-y things, uh, and philosophy for sure we talk about his music a bit i definitely recommend checking out uh the links page on this one on heyhumanpodcast.com because i'm gonna i'm gonna put stuff of of him performing on there uh in other news hey human podcast will be found on social media instagram and facebook my personal social media is under susan ruthism uh you can find me at susanruth.com you can Find everything Hey Human at heyhumanpodcast.com. You can email me, susan at heyhumanpodcast.com, and I encourage you to do so. And if you have an interesting story or you know someone with an interesting story, please uh, definitely let me know. I'm always looking for people to talk to. I've got a lot of very cool episodes coming up. I've been, I mean, what else am I going to be doing except for talking to people? So I've been stockpiling a lot of fun conversations with various kinds of people. Really enjoying it. I don't know about y'all, but I'm having uh, definitely ebb and flow days. The last two days, woof, I was not motivated in the least. I could not get myself to do anything, really, other than I did watch a whole bunch of Netflix, which I haven't done in a while. It was fun to do that. I watched the uh, new stand-up of Jerry Seinfeld. Really enjoyed it. And I'm really getting into, on Netflix, uh, If I don't know if you all know who Duncan Trussell is. He has a podcast called the Duncan Trussell Family Hour. And he has taken interviews and... It, actually, I don't even want to try to describe what it is. It's this wild ride in a cartoon landscape with these deep wonderful conversations uh, the characters are having, and I love it. It's called The Midnight Gospel. It's so good. I love it. It may not be for everyone. It probably isn't for a lot of people, but man, I really dug it a lot. The cartoons are, are fun. I find myself watching this show. You'll know if you watch it, you'll see what I'm saying. I find myself watching this show and getting caught up in the cartoon of it and then maybe missing some of the things that they're talking about and then I have to go back because I'm trying to follow along the story of the cartoon 
which is incongruent to what they're talking about. And so I have to <laughs> kind of separate my brain to, to be able to catch everything. So I go back and then listen to the conversation. And oh, man, I tell you, it's really enjoyable. I'm about, I think I'm four episodes in and I just, I love it. I also watched the Patton Oswalt stand up and that was really fun. Um, I don't know if you know Patton Oswalt's story uh, that his, his lovely wife passed away and he got remarried to Meredith Salinger. Um, wow. I'm just so, it, it's neat. He says something that I just think is so beautiful. He says, run toward love. Run toward love. I felt like I needed to write that out and stick it on my wall so I could look at it every day. Because love means a lot of different things. It's not just physical love or romantic love, if you will. It's, it's just good things. It's the things that, that fill you up. Run toward that stuff. I love that idea. I mean, it's, it's such a simple idea, but it sort of escapes us in the, the cacophony of the world. Run toward love. Full speed. I dig it. Anyway, as I mentioned, uh, Link's page is at heyhumanpodcast.com. Definitely reach out to me if you'd like. Please rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. It's so very helpful. I know it takes a minute, but uh, do this for me if you can. I'd really appreciate it. And uh, if you feel like donating to Hey Human podcast, that would also be great. Uh, you can do that on the main front page of heyhumanpodcast.com. Every little bit helps immensely. Thank you to those of you who have already donated. Uh, I am beyond words, but thank you and love you. And I, I appreciate it so, so very much. Especially in these crazy times where none of us really know where our next paycheck is coming from. Um, and somebody like me who's in the arts that everything is revolving around other people wanting to ingest the arts, whether it's my painting or uh, my music that I write or this podcast, for that matter. So I really do appreciate those of you who have donated and, you know, it, it means the world to me. So, all right, that's, uh, that's what I got. And looking forward to you hearing this episode. Again, some really fun ones coming up as well. Um... It's good, good stuff, keeping me sane in a topsy-turvy world. Thanks for listening, everybody. Here we go. Thanks for uh, agreeing to this. <laughs> sure, we are. Uh, have we met in three dimensions? We have, at uh, Wine and Song. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to turn down the volume here just a hair. Sure. Groovy. <laughs> I'm very nervous, but you know. You are? I'm trying, yeah, I know, but... I'm trying to be a, a, a soldier about it, so. I appreciate that. Well, Chauncey Bowers, welcome to Hey Human Podcast. Hey. I really appreciate uh, you taking the time to be on the show, uh, being socially distant and all. Mm. This is a good time, I think, for this kind of show. I think you're right. Yeah, it's a, people are finally slowed down enough where they can, you can wrangle them in. Yeah. <laughs> where are you in Pasadena right now? Yeah, well, I... Uh, North Alhambra, just like half a block away from South Pasadena. That's why I can end up at Wine and Song so easily, so often. Yeah. And uh, you know, just so I can just annoy people every week if I want to. I met you there with Mark Islam. 
And you had performed a song called Helmet, among others, that night, but that one really stood out to me. And uh, I, I loved it. It was so bright and, and fun. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's a human being I want to talk to. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. That's, uh, that's the, the circus song where, yeah, where I have to wear a helmet because I'm being shot out of a cannon. And then, you know, it turns out to just be a, a public service announcement eventually. Yeah, I love it. Your your music is very uh, witty and dry. Uh, it's very English humor. Uh, oh, I think. It's very... well, it's, that's a compliment. I like. You know, I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. Let's go back to the beginning of you. You were raised up in Georgia. Yeah, uh, Mississippi. Till I was maybe eight or so, and then uh, then most of. My next life was uh, in Georgia. We we moved around every few years. My my father worked for the government, and um, so if we liked a place, we would stay there five years. That was the maximum amount of time. And if my parents didn't like a place, we would move the next year. And so they really liked Mississippi. We stayed there five years. Then we moved to they didn't like Kentucky. That's too far north. So we left there after a year, and then Georgia five years. Yeah. What was his branch in the government? What did he do? He was a veterinarian for, you know, Department of Agriculture. Oh, what a neat job. It's an interesting job. It is. It, the, uh, you know, his entry-level job was meat inspection at a slaughterhouse, right? That's apparently how you start once you get your fancy veterinarian degree. Um, and uh, he worked his way up to getting promoted to go to Washington, D.C. So when we moved from Georgia, we actually moved to Maryland because he'd finally gotten this promotion that he'd been working for. Did that instill a, an interest in science when you were young? No, no. No? Uh, he, 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 unfortunately, he, he passed away when I was pretty young, and so the science came up a little later based on misadventures I had that, that indicated my understanding of physics was from cartoons. And uh, so I thought I should really maybe knuckle down and figure out how the world works. Was it the wily e. Coyote anvil that caught your attention? It, it, it really was. Um, like I said, I, some friends of mine gave me five bucks to ride my bicycle into the swimming pool. And uh, I had wanted to do that anyway. So, I, you know, I thought they were foolish for giving me money for it. And they thought I was foolish for wanting to ride my bicycle into the swimming pool. And in my mind, if I got enough speed I would just sort of skip across the, the surface like a rock you know and that was in my head that's what was going to happen and uh, that, that is not what happened and as I was wrapped around the handlebars crotch first I was thinking I need to look into this whole physics thing <laughs> how old are you when that happened about uh, 14 13 or 14 but you know this was before it was so easy to see these idiots do this on the internet so you could get some warning I, you know i was just uh, i was working it out myself and not very well yeah, it is very interesting to me that you bring up the youtube challenges and things that you can see how it doesn't work over and over again yeah yeah and you know darwin chuckles and lets it lets her rip i suppose yeah once i if i had access to that i think i wouldn't have done it you know i, I just it just seemed like a good idea for to me at the time and there was a couple 
uh, things like that. But that was when I was really memorable. And, um, and like I said, I, I started maybe a quarter of a mile away so I could just get up a really good head of steam. And, and there was not a muscle in my body that thought I would stop immediately when my first part of my bicycle hit the squad. I, this, it was, I was thinking I could make it to the other side of the pool, but I felt like I was optimistic and I might just skip for a while and gently sink. But in fact, it just stopped instantly. And I, of course, continued forward at whatever velocity I had achieved. And like I say, my crotch kind of hit the handlebars. Oh. I wrapped around it like a sad little slug shrinking. And then oh, we sank into the swimming pool. It was, uh, like I say, it, it caught my attention. Yeah, as you hit that still water pool and it was like a concrete wall. It just, yeah, it's, again, <laughs> and I... <laughs> I should have known that. I had no idea. And then see, well, you can see how there's a wily coyote aspect to this. I just had this image of all things going very well. It is astounding that any of us survive our childhood from all the mishaps and uh, misadventures we take. It's true. No, no, I, I wouldn't survive most of them now. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what, what did move, moving around so much as a kid uh, change? Uh, your songwriting, I know you you were a scientist, you retired from that, and you are a mm. song, performing songwriter now. And mm. you're, again, your songs are very smart. Um, they're very, uh, Leonard Cohen comes to mind. Uh, mm. um, John Prine comes to mind. Yeah, no, and, he's one of them. You know, and who, who are absolutely phenomenal, obviously. And to be in that in that echelon it's uh, pretty astounding and i remember sitting there in the audience listening to you perform and i thought you just don't hear stuff like this very often you not only tell a story but you really think about the people in the story you, you think they have backstory they have features yeah. it's it's really great no I, and I, those people you met it's really who i learned it from i mean when i was growing up um leader cohen John Prine and, and then Randy Newman, they taught me, first of all, they taught me that you didn't have to sing very well <laughs> to perform a song, and that was important, it still is. And But also, you know, they were great storytellers, and, and, and they could capture a lot in a, in a phrase. And so I, I used to just hang on John Prine and Randy Newman especially. Um, and Randy Newman does this thing that I also like to do, which is he takes on what's called... Um, the unreliable narrator, right, where he is, is a singing sort of in first person and making observations about the world that really aren't accurate, but he, but he believes them. And so I, I, that's, I learned that from Randy. He's, he's just one of my favorite people. He could have uh, invented Facebook with that attitude. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we could. <laughs> just let's go somewhere where we can make stuff up. <laughs> <laughs> and believe it with every ounce of our and being. believe it, yep. Yeah. yeah um, so. so moving around so much, did you, the characters you met along the way in childhood, were you aware then that that they were in fact characters or were, was your childhood more <laughs> blissful and unawares? It was up until around the swimming pool, it was blissful and unawares. After that, honestly, I started paying more attention to everything. It's people to what to what it meant for for what a good friend meant, for example, how they acted in versus just people you ran into. It, that all started. A lot of things started to come together there for for several reasons. 
but you know, I'm, I assume just like everybody, everything that happened to me somehow feeds into how I think and how I see the world. Sure. I mean, I don't know if you might have heard, but I mean, partly when I was in Maryland, I helped this shady character repossess cars, and that you know that kind of thing again it sticks with you and looking back you know I'm not sure we were always repossessing the cars and so at the time it never occurred to me that anything else could be going on but and how old were you when that was happening I was 16 I just got my driver's license and so when this guy asked me to repossess cars with him he would go down his story was that because he had money it was clear he was pretty well off but he he enjoyed repossessing cars and he would only go repossess cars when someone else had tried and had an altercation with the owner and so then the car dealer would call him and he'd go in and basically we would just go in at night and take the car and so again i didn't at the time <laughs> it didn't occur to me that this was a lot like stealing a car this this had all of the same nuance um, i'm pretty sure most of them were righteous repossessions but every once in a while I just don't know. This guy turned out to be an odd fellow. Did you ever get into an altercation as a repo man? Or a repo man adjacent? Yeah, I was a yeah, adjunct <laughs> assistant repo man for a few months when I was 16. Because I figured I'm 16, I have a driver's license. I don't see a downside to, to driving these cars out of neighborhoods that I would never normally visit. So... Um, was there? Yeah, there was a couple of close calls, I think, where people in the neighborhood clearly knew we weren't from the neighborhood and kind of gathered around the back of it. Because I was in charge of getting the repossessed car back to the garage. And um, again, when I think about it, I'm always in that car. I'm, you know, he's never in there. <laughs> <laughs> but I kind of had to make a decision about if I was going to call their bluff about them moving out of my way or let whatever they wanted to do to me happens it was a little that was a couple of tricky moments that's why it was short-lived i suppose well i had to move away i moved away but it, oh. it was going to be short-lived i mean it, he like I said he turned out to be an uh a not wholly trust trustworthy you know individual it turns out i i, I mean i never i mean he said he was an airline pilot that's why he had money and and he eventually married a friend of mine who was in college at the time. And, and later she was talking to his parents and, and saying, you know, because he was away, you know, he'd put on his pilot uniform and leave for a few days and come back. And, and they told him, a pilot, he doesn't have a job. You know, wait, hold on. You're breaking up a lot. So wait. Oh, so, no, it's okay. <laughs> I think I got the gist of it. So your friend married this man. Yes. And That's how I met him was through her, in fact. Okay, and he would don his pilot's uniform and leave for a few days at a time because, in her, to her knowledge, he was an airline yeah. pilot. Yes, and he'd call her from whatever town he was in. At least that's what we thought. And then she talked to his parents. His parents, yeah. And they said, he's not a pilot. You know, We're wealthy, and he has money because we give him money. And so, to my friend's credit, that was a deal breaker. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> but... We don't know where he was going. I mean, he could have had a whole nother life somewhere doing the same thing, right? I mean, it's a, kind of a pretty little setup. That catch me if you can. Yeah. No, it, but it, yeah. So I was happy not to live there anymore when that all finally came out. Wow. 
that's who I've been possessing cars with. That's why. That's what started me thinking. Whoa, he's not even a pilot. And he might not have been a repo man. Although you did return right. the cars, I suppose. So no, I'm pretty sure. Like I say, it's hard. It's just hard to know. And, and if you kind of read about, you know, like that movie Repo Man, it's one of my favorite movies. But it's a great there's, movie. There's always a gray area. I mean, there's like I said, there's a mix of, yeah, this is really a repossession, and then there's like, well, could you pick this one up too? So mm -hmm. I, honestly, I was 16. I did the due diligence you would expect from a 16 year old. Sure. I, I don't know what the hell I was doing. It's hilarious. When your father passed away, did you then move from Maryland to Pasadena, or was there? I moved. No, we moved back to Georgia then. Okay. But that's where I'd been last. We lived in Maryland only a couple of years, and um, those were, you know, I knew I went back to the same high school I'd gone to before, so it was just a very familiar thing to do, which was which was nice at that point to have something familiar to go back to and friends that kind of thing. It must have been surreal to lose your dad so young. It's not a good age. I was like say, 15, 16, something like the 16. And it was just and it was just sad because he had worked most of his life to get this to get there, to get to Maryland and because he worked in Washington DC, we lived in Maryland. And you know within a year he's diagnosed with cancer and less than a year he, he's gone. So wow. it's it was rough. I'm so sorry. Yeah, no, that's a long do time you, ago. Do you have siblings? Yeah, a brother and a sister. I'm the youngest. My sister passed away a few years ago. And my brother, he still lives in, well, until recently he lived in Georgia, but he's moved to North Carolina. So he, most of my family stayed in the South. Mm -hmm. I lived in Nashville for 13 years before I moved here. That, that counts as the South. I That's think it good. does. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so you've been in California how long? Uh, a little under a year. Oh, okay. Not too long. Not too long. Yeah. yeah. And so you came from Nashville to here. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. Just in time to be locked up in my house. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, that's funny. Yes, but that's all right. It's it can't last forever. They say, whoever they are, according yeah, to Facebook, here. it can't last forever. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're. I think they're right about that. And then you know, probably better to be sheltered in California than Nashville. And I'm not. Yes, because the weather, firstly, has made all the difference yeah. in the world. Having sunshine when you you're already borderline depressed about everything is uh, it's, it makes a big difference. Yeah, it's a thing. It is. Yeah, absolutely. The weather in Nashville and the winter weather and even the spring is starts to feel pretty abysmal, honestly. Yeah. And they've had some bad storms recently. They have. Yeah, yeah. some of my friends uh, had very devastating. Uh, their houses lost, everything they own lost, injuries, things like that. So, you know, it was not a good, not a very good situation. And then to have this on top of it, it's just, you know, life. Yeah. Yeah. What, uh, where, so the, the pool incident began your, your contemplation. What, mm -hmm. what got you into sciences specifically? And, and also to that end, what, what branch of science did you go into? You know, what, what, well, probably, so when I moved back to Georgia, um, Probably the biggest influence of, of like real science was uh, in the high school I was in. It was a, an, a truly phenomenal chemistry teacher, and for high school especially, he, he had like two a two year course, like you take what would be maybe normal high school chemistry, and then he had sort of a an advanced another year of it or so. And um, I just I adored him, and I loved chemistry, and 
And so when I graduated high school, I went to Georgia Tech because that was in state, and we had that was I couldn't afford going out of state. But luckily, Georgia Tech's a great school, and so I majored in chemistry there, and mainly organic chemistry synthesis stuff. And then um, I loved it, and got to do a little research near the end of my time at in college. And so then after college, I applied to some graduate schools because I just uh, I thought if I just stayed in school, maybe I'd never have to get a job. <laughs> So it turns out that's not, it's insidious the way that you end up having to work for a living, even if you go to school forever. Um, so then I went off to graduate school up in Boston, which is sort of a culture shock in itself. I'd spent most of my time in the South. Um, Boston. Winter alone, yeah. Yeah. No, no, it's everything. It was, uh, if culture shock could kill you, I'd be dead, yeah. It was fun, though. And I, a lot of wonderful people I met up there. I lived there for maybe six or seven years. You got your doctorate, and, and your research scientist, yeah. your doctorate is in uh, chemistry, or is it in... Well, it's in pharmacology. My research is mainly cell biology and neurobiology. You know, I did cell biology on nerve cells, mainly. And um, and then then I moved to San Francisco uh, for a postdoc, which is, yet again, another culture shock for for an old southern boy like myself yeah i, I loved i love san francisco i just loved it as soon as i moved there i was just so happy yeah it's a great city absolutely i just started an abstract last night uh, like two in the morning i've had insomnia the past couple nights but uh it was um about the these these researchers uh who stated that the brain when faced with ptsd can alter the effects of immunization it's really fascinating. Really? Yeah. yeah that's, so the brain is, <laughs> it is really, I mean, it's like, you know, it's an understatement. It's just, it's, 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 it's fascinating mm -hmm. and for a, a lot of reasons. And I used to spend a lot of time, um, and this may not, a lot of people may, probably don't know this, but I spent a lot of time trying to get evidence for what I would, what most people call paranormal parapsychology, that kind of stuff, auras, you know, almost anything you can think of that, especially in the 70s, that was, that, you know, plant, you know, plants having feelings, and, and I, I went some effort to reproduce those things, because they were published in these weird journals, and my feeling was, and they look fine in terms of numbers, this is when I'm getting into science and understanding how to do statistics, and, and I'm going, well, this is true. I, I mean, I'm just going to repeat it and publish it in a real journal. I mean, because this, this is transforms how you think about the world. Any one of these things, right? I mean, people kind of believe in a hundred things that are crazy. But, and, and part of my response is just pick one. If one of those is true, it changes everything. And so I, I spent a lot of time trying to, because I, I really wanted them to be true. That's the, that the first thing. And I forget why I went this direction, but it, I spent some time trying to like because i could see auras and so i thought well seeing them is not proof but so i maybe i can get a picture or maybe i can do something with them that is um you know documentable right in other words i can see something that other people can't see because i can see it's aura and they can you know there's i went through a bunch of stuff to, to, and dermo dermo optics you know there the russians had a whole series of articles about people being able to see light and even read newspapers i i, I thought that was unlikely but the fundamental thing was that you could kind of detect things with you could take visual things with your skin and so 
I, I set up a whole experiment to try and see if that, that could be true. Are you I talking about remote viewing? Or are you talking about no. actually um, imbibing words from a page into your fingertips? Well, that was the high end of the Russian claim was that they had people who could do that. But the, the, the lower end was simply that, for example, you could detect whether a light was on or off with your hand, right? Um, that, that's sort of the lowest end. And but they had people, and again, it was in their in their in their literature. It was in what was considered reasonable psychology journals, and, and which is how I got the psychology department at Georgia Tech to let me try and reproduce one of these things because it, it was in a journal. But there, you know, Russian relationship to science back then, especially, it was government influenced, and they weren't that careful it turns out but but and i tried to you know the famous experiment of you know the plants responding to you as you approach them even before you water them as you just approach them with water and talk nicely to them i thought well that's a slam dunk i, I know i can get that to happen and, but it turns out once you do the controls once you do the right controls it just goes away it's not it was never there explain to folks what the control group means because for some people don't know what that means you know, for well, for drugs, there's a control group. For most experiments, there's just controls. There's just, and this is something I tell you the truth. Having once, having stopped being a bench top scientist, having kind of retired and you know playing more music, I I realize that that being a scientist is a is a truly unnatural thing to be. It is not what we are inclined to do. We our brains are more like lawyers. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I, I mean that we're more prone to think as an advocate, right? That we we came to a conclusion based on God knows what. And from then on, we're just looking for confirmation of that. Mm -hmm. Confirmation it's, it's, bias is a huge yeah, part of the human condition. It is. And there's many more biases than that. But, the, but what often you'll see when you see evidence against you, you'll just get really nuanced about why that might not be true. Whereas evidence on your side, you just go, well, of course that's true. And there's no kind of balance of, of trying to get at the truth, frankly. Right? Whereas in science, if you don't question evidence that supports your idea, another scientist will and they'll destroy you. Right? It's not that scientists are that you know cool. It's just that we have a business model that makes us vulnerable to not taking seriously data and, and how to interpret it and... and how to explain it and so so by controls that's what i mean is that you know i would i would work to see i would sort of teach myself how to see auras because i felt it was fascinating and it wasn't hard to do and it, when i first did that i was pretty young and, it, and so it took me longer than it should have to, to know what the right control was but but the the bigger issue is is what scientists do more than most people is when they get data that supports their hypothesis, they still question it. They're still not, they wanna know why that could be wrong. How could I still be wrong? Because again, if you don't do it, some other person will. Right, and I think for me, that's the biggest frustration when I see articles written that are so anti-science. And uh, I don't think people understand that science is out to prove things wrong they're not out to prove it right there's millions of scientists trying to prove why something isn't correct right. no we really don't want to be wrong in, in print i mean you know that's it's i mean people get away with it but the point is every other scientist knows and it's, it's just right there and it's public i mean again from a scientist i mean not everyone can read these kind of research papers but from us you're writing a research paper generally for other scientists sure 
And, it takes and some work. Like, it does. Uh, the, even yeah. the abstract I read last night, I read it maybe five or six times before I really, for the meat of it, really sunk in. But, uh, you know, being willing to put in the work for something that, yes. that sparks your interest, I think, is half the battle. It is half the battle. And just and having a truly curious mind in the sense of you, you actually do want to know. And it's just, like I say, it's not a superpower. It's just I don't think that is our natural inclination. And, 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 it, and it is a lot of what we teach. Like, you know, I ended up teaching a lot of graduate students, um, you know, where they're getting their, their degree, right? And, and one of the things you end up focusing on is how to think critically. I, I resist that phrase because it's so often used, but you can be very smart and not do that very well. And a lot of what you teach graduate students, because most of the graduate students coming in have degrees in some hard science. They're smart. There's no doubt they're smart. And it's just but teaching them how to read a paper and not just how to trash it. A lot of them think that's what smart is. Just trash this paper. Let's just see how we can trash it. You can kind of always find something wrong with, well, anything, frankly, but uh, certainly a research paper. But the, the, the more challenge is like what here is probably right and what here isn't and just and let's figure and whatever's right let's move on from there to the next experiment you know so you know, they, they can like i say it that there's a large part of teaching graduate school that's that and so for the paranormal stuff um it varied a lot of, of you know, for any specific experiment the control would be uh, would be different and so for example for auras you know the theory is anyway that the person is sort of emanating that somehow, right? And again, it gets very vague once you try to get past that, but I, you know, I was seeing him, so what the hell? But the, the, the control becomes, um, if I have a person in front of me, or, what, or some, if I have a way of seeing someone's aura, and I block them out, can I still see the aura? And the answer was no. So that sort of rules out that I'm seeing something emanating from them basically it was all i mean i can explain most of it now that i understand neurobiology better and all of the cognitive biases that we bring to every observation that's why it ended up being the brain is 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 dark and noisy i call it deep space (laughs) yeah it's a great name for it because uh, i mean i saw auras as well as i'm seeing you know you right now um but they weren't there but, okay, so in that, what was your theory to what you were seeing? And I'm assuming you're talking about colors and, or are yeah, you? Yeah, eventually I could see colors. People's colors would change when people's moods change. Um, I also, you know, did, did a fair amount of what they now would call, well, back then it was astral projection. And then it went to out-of-body experience. But I got to where I could do that. And it was, and it still is the probably the most fascinating subjective state I've, I've ever experienced. Um, and now it's probably more appropriate to call it lucid dreaming, but it doesn't take away from how incredible the experience is, mm. where you have your lucid mind inside of a dream. It's a very interesting juxtaposition. And, and, and but again, early on, this is good. Again, it's like a, this is a control early. So that happened first. I the first time I was able to get out of my body, it was just astounding. And and I wandered around a little bit in the house, and then and then I started worrying. I wasn't clear to me how I was supposed to get back. So I started worrying about how much time, I, you know, so anyway. So then I just focused on how do I get back in my body? Because the, the point is I'd sat up in bed and turned around and I was still lying down in the bed. And so I was like, how do I get back in? And so that 
the first couple of times that was I wanted to make sure that worked. It was reversible. But, but then, at least the theory I was working on, that's why we call it astral. It was, it was an astral plane, and I'm kind of experiencing, and I'm you know that sort of stuff. In other words, that the, the basic assumption is there really is a, a me that can see from some place other than behind my eyes, and I can take that and go look at other things, right? And so, but, but again, it's easy to test that. I mean, first of all, can I go look at something that I don't wouldn't normally know what it is and find out what it is? Right. So that that control is pretty straightforward. It's, it, you could call that control or just another experiment, because it doesn't mean I'm not having this subjective experience. The question is, is this subjective experience mean I'm actually out of my body looking at something over here when I'm actually over there? So is that like something like somebody writing on a piece of paper in another room, and then you can go look at it and then come back and then report what you've yeah, seen? Yeah, like they can put it somewhere. Somebody could put something, and I would. Where I, that I, I knew I could get to from the astral plane, but I never, I didn't see it or do, you know, and then I go see if I can, and I've not only done that for myself, but other people who, who I call it guided out-of-body experience under hypnosis, I thought maybe we'd have more success if, if it was someone else having the experience and I was just saying, go look at this. Um, but again, every time, it came down to something that you would go, that's the proof. It, the, the whole thing just went away. So you don't now believe in aura and or astral projection? No, no, I, uh, I don't have it. I mean, I wanted them to be true. And then when I did the controls, nothing I had seen or experienced. Well, again, I stand by how fascinating lucid dreaming is, but it's not. You know, it's not parapsychology. It's, and that's what, the brain is what's fascinating here. Like I said, there are nooks and crannies in your brain that you have to go through naked. And it is fascinating. What then were you seeing? Well, for, well, for the out-of-body experience, that's, like I said, we now call that lucid dreaming. And you can learn to do that. These exercises, you know, to that, they, they are remarkably similar to how people learned how to astral project. So, but lucid dreaming, but sleep researchers didn't even believe that could be true. They did not think that a person could have that waking type lucidity while they were dreaming. And so it's badass. I love doing that. I learned yeah. how to do that once little because I had very severe nightmares and it was a mm. way to stop that. Yeah. And that's, so there's levels of lucidity. And so one of them is just, this is a dream. I'm out of here. Right. But if, when you really, the level of lucidity that I'm talking about is you're in a nightmare and there's a monster coming and you just say, no, there's not. You're not scared. Because that's, that's you coming at you. That's your own head, right? You're in a dream, right? Think about, well, how you think right now, putting that in a dream. If there was a monster, you would just go, this is a dream. I can, I can make that go away. And you can. It's... And then, so it became clear because of these controls I was doing, experiments, that what I was really seeing was, uh, you know, my best memory of what the room looked like, right? Notice, I'm walking around the house, I'm doing stuff, I'm actually banging on walls trying to wake up people saying, I'm out of my, let's go, let's left something, I'm out of my body, yeah, yeah. And once it, once it became clear that wasn't what was happening, but I was having that experience, then for me the question became, what will I see if I can stop making up this room, right? 
like if I, I mean, I know I'm making the room up. And so then I was trying to see what happened if I could make that construct go away and still be in that state of mind. You see what I'm saying? What if the astral plane is a uh, matrix where you are making up the rooms as you go, though? Uh-huh. Yeah, well, if I can't see or know anything from there that I don't know anyway, you know, at some point you've concocted an untestable idea that no longer... Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> what about auras? What do you think those are? I, I don't... I mean, the kind of auras, the classic aura, you know, where you see around people in their hands and and they and they change colors. Like I said, I can attest to all that. And in auric bonds, I've seen people who were in love and they had, there was like an aura bond between them. It was, you know, it's, and I honestly, I, I could pass my hand through that and... and it wasn't subtle. It wasn't subtle. But um, I learned to make that up. I mean, we underestimate what our brains can do in terms of what we see. And I mean, that's why scientists, we even question what the hell we see. So if you can't prove it through uh, through these studies, um, these trials, if you were, uh, if you would, uh, then... Is that an absolute that it doesn't exist? I think about when, no. when we were young, we didn't know quarks existed, but they did, even though we mm. didn't know they did. You know, mm. so if you yeah, don't know, is, it's that sort of, um, what is it, uh, uh, the, the cat in the box. Oh, yeah, Schrodinger's Schro- Yeah, Schrodinger's cat. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so, um, <laughs> so there's a whole cottage industry where once you show this thing's not true, then they make up some other permutation. Well, yeah, but this will be true. And at some point, you know, I just go, well, you, you show me. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm done looking for certain things. So, but the point is me kind of doing the experiment for auras showed that what I thought they were wasn't true. Mm-hmm. Right? And the same for the astral projection, what I thought I was doing and what I had been told I was doing, not true. Mm-hmm. Right? That, that there's something else that I didn't check you know, I can't ever say, you know, but it, but every single thing I've ever tried from plant awareness to, um, it, 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 they go away when you do the right experiment. Interesting. Do you still see auras, even though you no. no, I could, I think, I mean, if, but because I worked to do it and I could probably could do it again. Um, I don't anymore. I don't, you know, they're just distracting. <laughs> but you know I always had to kind of get a kind of a poorly lit you know there was still a, a process even when I was seeing them I, I wouldn't necessarily see them when I was you know people say in a, a well lit area mm. you know you, and, and but also anyway, it's I didn't mean to go on about that it, no it's great it, it's, it's so fascinating yeah it's early on, early on I, it was that thing of okay this, all, this appears absolutely true to me how could I be wrong and, and so as I got better at science but you know even as late as graduate school I still the aura thing was still bugging me and and it could be because I've been trying to take a picture of them because I said that's how to convince other people is, is and I'd use special film you know UV infrared and you know, you know all this stuff trying to figure out how to get a picture of them and it, for some reason in graduate school it occurred to me that that if the wavelengths of an aura were blocked by glass it would never get through the lens of a camera Right, and so this is my last hurrah of trying to get auras on film, um, which was I made a pinhole camera, right? 
and you get the right film that will be sensitive to UV. There's no there's nothing in between that film and whatever you're trying to, and it's just not very efficient. So somebody, who's usually me, has to sit still for about 20 minutes to get an image of the person. But then the question was, does there, do you see, now do you see it, now that you've taken away the glass? Do you see how hard I'm trying to prove this damn thing? <laughs> nothing. Huh. It's a cool picture though. Yeah. Very cool picture, because it's like, you know, black light and I'm sitting there for 20 minutes and, uh, and every time I open my eyes my eyes like glow like orbs so it was a very cool picture but, I think uh, about no a museum that I was in once it was a science museum although I can't recall where and there was a apparatus when you stood in front of it it showed your heat signatures like it showed what parts of your and it was green and red and orange and yellow and mm-hmm. uh, different parts of your body lit up yeah. in different color pattern. and I thought well maybe it's, it, to me, that seemed like a rudimentary example of what an aura would be. Is just that we are yeah. all energetic. So no, we are. No, no, so if you go there, then you know there's no, there's no argument. I mean, we create electromagnetic fields. You know, small, but they're there in terms of our the way our nervous system works. Um, so that, you know that that it that you could if you have sensitive enough equipment that you can detect that. That's that's just going to be true. That, but that's a different question than me of, you know. Yeah. And then, and when you're talking about, you know, you're basically at the temperature of people's mm-hmm. skin in different mm-hmm. areas of their body. Mm-hmm. And, uh, to me, that's not related to auras, but, but it's. But it's I'm just saying the, the similarity of the the color yeah. spectrums and things. Yeah. Well, you might remember that this because this is also something I had to look into when it was curly in photography, right? There was a whole form of photography that was meant to be able to capture electromagnetic fields around people and the famous one was a leaf where um you set it on set it on a static and electric field near some film and what you see is not only the leaf but you see this thing around the leaf and so curly and photography was was big for a while of proof that you, you could that auras were real but again when you did the right control <laughs> it went away have you seen the experiments with the water where they take glasses of water and look at them microscopically and they see what happens when you microwave it or if you yell at it or... Yeah. Yeah, that's just complete bullshit. Those are fascinating, though, the, the photography from that no, stuff. No, it is, but I, I don't know what they're doing there. I mean, and I... And, and I... I said on more than one occasion, if there is a such thing as magic in the physical world, it's water. I mean, water is a, an extraordinary substance. But these things they're talking about, uh, there's, there's not a single, I mean, we don't even have to talk about getting details about controls. There's not, a, there's not even a compelling experiment. What you see is what you're kind of, somebody puts pictures out and says, this is what water looks like when you're angry. This is what it looks like right. when you're happy. And it, it is, if that was remotely true, you wouldn't have to go to that one guy and look at his pictures. I mean, because it, it, I can say this changes everything. Right, because the water has a structure, but it is on the level of nanoseconds and less. That's how permanent that structure is. The idea that you could influence by thought, again, it changes everything. Well, we yeah, like to know. anthropomorphize things, right? Because it gives us an understanding of what a thing is. And and I, there's, there's a part of me that thinks, okay, I'm glad... Like, I talk to my plants all the time, sure, and I, I and I say, "Are you thirsty? Do you want to be watered today?" And I feel like they either say yes or no, and I you know respond to that. Yeah, but I, I don't see anything wrong with that. I mean, it's only 
I I have some very specific magical thoughts of my own that I hold dear, and and I think you can't you probably can't be fully human without some, because mm. uh, otherwise you're just probably a sociopath. I mean, we have to sort of make these leaps of yeah, why care, why attend to things. Why, there's a lot of it anyway. Makes, it makes the world more interesting. What it makes the world more interesting, and and to me those feelings. It's like Walden, you know, it's, it's, it gives you a sense that you are not alone. You are the tree, you are the leaf, you know? It's, yeah. No, that's, and I think feeling that kind of connect, connectivity is, is actually a, a healthy thing. And if it means talking to a plant, I just, there's, I have no problem with that. I mean, I talk to my cats and I'm pretty sure they're not that much better than a plant about like giving a shit what I'm doing. But I find it very sweet to talk to them and you know, they, they just stare at me usually. I don't wanna, cause I actually get annoyed with people who seem like they wanna surgically remove all magical thoughts from everybody that somehow it'll be a better world without them. And I don't believe that. I, I think we desperately need magical thoughts because there's categories of things that are incommensurable. And the way humans deal with those categories is magical thought and ritual, frankly. We do rituals, right? So the classic example is if a loved one of yours dies, you have now two categories of things on you. On you. You, have a, you have a loved one who still looks alive probably, but they're dead. You also have a problem getting ready to have a problem with uh, disease and other things that are bad are going to happen as they sit there and decay. Right? In other words, there's an, uh, there's an offensive aspect to a dead body on top of that, this still looks like my mother. Right? That's what I mean by incommensurable worlds. Those two categories don't, don't fit. And the way every culture on, on earth deals with it is a ritual. And they do the ritual to make it clear that this is not just throwing out the trash. Hmm. I, to me, that's captures why this stuff's important. My friend Russ, my friend Russ and I were talking about death the other day, and he talked about when his father died, and um, it was a group of us on Zoom actually. But so he wasn't just talking to me, but he was talking about uh, that when his father passed away, that who the being that was his father was no longer present. And mm-hmm. that he took offense to this body masquerading as his <laughs> father. And I thought that was so beautiful. It was such a beautiful way to put it. Yeah. No, no, I, I like that a lot, yeah. But but there is still this visceral... And, and I mean, I th- again, if you can... I think it's lovely, I think, what he was saying, and I agree with it. But especially early on, there's just... There's a visceral recognition of this being... Or if you want, having been a loved, loved one... That is, that is at odds with what you now have to do. Mm. But no, I think, you know, but again, I think if we saw someone who came across a dead body and just sat on it like a log, we would be suspicious of that person. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? I mean, that's what I mean. <laughs> well, getting into the idea of, um, of fact versus... Uh, biases and things one man's fact is another man's fiction these days now I follow you on Facebook and I see you uh, you're posting things daily trying to 
to have a voice of reason, I, I suppose is the best way to put it. Um, I'm trying to kind of, yeah, I, I guess I'm, I'm doing something. I can I keep doing it. Yes. Yeah. Um, let's talk about that for a second. Um, sure. one of the, you know, you, your, your image is frozen completely on my computer. Oh, it is. Yeah. Oh, that's, it's, it's okay. I am I making really, a funny face? <laughs> no, no, you look very intent. But, but then earlier when I was talking and you, you did change your facial expression, it, at first I was worried. Oh, I'm not staying. <laughs> I thought I was having a stroke. <laughs> I stopped being engaging, whatever I, I was ever. Should I but stop I, it and re and recalibrate? We, I don't, I don't know. Is it frozen right now? Yeah, it's, fro it's All right, frozen. let me hang up and I'll call you right back. Okay. Yay. This is, not, this is the first time I've used FaceTime or anything, really, and, and so I'm out of my element. Well, I you're doing know. very well. Thank you. <laughs> okay. The only issue is that sometimes it does freeze, and so somebody will say something, and especially because I'm recording it, yes. I have to get you to repeat the whole thing that you've said and, you know, all sure. that. Uh, so getting back to my question, um, I've, I, one of the things that fascinates me about humans uh, is that, and I get it, so here we are, there's this virus going on right now, and there are so many, it, it's a terrible thing, it's just to many people it seems like out of left field, although to, to a lot of us who follow science things, it's, it's a, like, yeah, this was, was just a matter of time, and of course... Yeah, yeah. Um, but for those the, those who, people who don't aren't who are not thinking about that stuff every day, which is fine. It's it's seemingly coming out of left field, and then they come up with they they need something to to make it a touchstone. You know, they need they need to find their own sense of it, and in doing so, sometimes they they choose, in my opinion, and maybe I'm wrong, but these really strange, far-reaching theories that seem way more illogical than just the logic of you know dna mixing with dna and you know, yeah. doing the thing doing what viruses do why do you think people do that i'm curious <laughs> no i that's you know that's not my but it is you know the, like the 5g thing is just wow you don't know anything about anything you don't know about electromagnetic waves you don't know about virus and yet you you have come to this conclusion you know with resounding energy and and I, it just it boggles me and, and again because i mean i because i was a, i've been a scientist most of my life and for most of my adult life truly almost every minute of every day was with another scientist either working but even when i went to lunch i, I we, my wife and i we would go my wife's a scientist as well we would go on vacations with people who were and so coming out of that some of it is encouraging I mean there's people there's just some very smart people floating around who you know aren't trained at all to, but they're just smart people and they're curious people and, and but there's a bunch of people who just I don't know where they what they're doing I really don't like the 5G is a good example but just in general I understand being confused by this but what I don't really understand is why not ask somebody who has studied it their entire life? Well, what I find... Why not just start there? Just start there. Sure, you know? sure. My father's a nuclear physicist, and my one of my dear friends very strongly believes that uh, 5G is in line with the coronavirus and that the 5G destroys your immune system and therefore you're susceptible to this virus, and that's a big governmental conspiracy to control us and all that. So mm -hmm. I said, do me a favor. Like, can we just, I'm going to connect you. You can ask my dad any question 
in the, in the world. Just ask him whatever. Yeah. And my father, bless him, gave very lovely, succinct, not too brainiac explanations describing your microwave and talking about back in the day when there were radio waves that were very powerful and they you know damaged people but that they figured out okay don't point don't point those at people point them you know upwards and this that the whole nine yards just response after response very calm very succinct and my friend still nope it's got to be this other thing. And I, I just find it. And everyone, of course, is entitled to their own opinion about things. But I think it gets dangerous. Maybe, maybe they it, are, maybe they're not. Yeah, it gets <laughs> dangerous because it spreads like its own virus. And then yeah. people make choices. And if you want to jeopardize yourself based on your choices, that's fine. You have every right and dominion over, over yourself. But mm-hmm. unfortunately, that is not the general consequence. The general consequence is you endanger multitudes. Yeah, often because because you're muddying the waters, if nothing else. And, and there's people who... I don't, I, but I don't know. I really don't understand that. I mean, I don't know what... Because to me, it's very exciting to actually find out something, really. And whereas making shit up is pretty easy. And so I don't understand the joy so much of making shit up compared to just doing a little. Because honestly, as far as I can tell, the amount of time some of these people spend online, if they just did half of that to, to just like see what people who know what they're talking about, what they're talking about. But even for stuff I that I post and somebody, it'll be like, you know, genetically engineered crops or, you know, artificial sweetener. I done this thing I mean the, the equivalent with, of your dad just really trying to be patient and walk through what these things are first of all and the, if they stick around to listen half the time they just go well you know you're, you've are you been indoctrinated right yeah. my experience as a scientist and training as a scientist is does not give me any status about these topics at some point they just feel like you've allowed yourself to become indoctrinated by the system, and that's why you're saying the same things I see when I go to people who know what they're talking about. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's I watched this really interesting video that um, actually the same guy sent me, and what was so ironic about him sending this to me was I don't know that he actually understood the video because, and I don't mean that in a cruel way. I mean that in a in a way that. So it is a former KGB operative who had defected to the United States. And he it was sometime in the 80s because he references uh, Walter Mondale. And uh, he's talking about how the Russian narrative of, um, of coming into America and completely destroying it over not one generation, not two generations, but three generations through a, uh, a systemic right. disease of misinformation and uh, and separating the masses to be pitted against each other. Yes. And he, there was something that he said in this video that was so just, that was the moment for me. He said, we are so good at this that in 30 years time, you'll be able to take someone by the hand and show them something that is absolutely the truth and they will look you square in the eye and say it's a lie. Yeah. No, as you know, we're pretty much we're close to that. We are right? there. I think I we mean, are the, there. The, the the Russian influence and and they're just sort of incessant tweaking partisan divide 
it, it, that's demonstrable. I mean, it, just in terms of them doing it, it's demonstrable. And to me, it's the shrillness of some of these debates about obvious stuff. It just speaks to the success of it. it, it, it I find it kind of depressing. For yeah, it's super depressing. And I think that that's where these things start. I think that that the misinformation machine is so powerful at this yeah. point. And people are eating it like it's yeah. cake and ice cream because that at least somehow, if you think you live in a random world where things like a virus can take out, uh, like for instance, 1918, you know, take out 50 million people, mm. that's terrifying. But if you can say, no, Mr. Johnson is building a tower that's zapping us and that's what's making right. us sick. Well, then we have we have Mr. Johnson to blame yeah. and that that's yeah. soothing, I think, to a lot of people. Yeah. No, it, 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 and really, I just not, I don't know the psychology of this very well. But, it, but some of it is, like you say, it's a desire to have some control over the world. Some that you feel like it's not just random stuff. Yeah. Um, and because that, that's another thing. I mean, I'm not. I'm not sure. I've, I'm not sure I've posted anything recently, but I often will talk about how non-intuitive randomness is, and that very few people know it when they see it, which is partly why epidemiologists and places like the CDC because people think often people think random means evenly distributed and that's pretty much the opposite of random you're always going to have little pockets and clusters of points in random and and if you're in one of those pockets of points you really think something's happening to you that's special but it takes a larger view of statistics to go no you're still in the, you're, that's still random well that's another thing is the specialness of us <clears throat> I think that we as humans do desire specialness. We want to think that our experiences happen solely to us or to the people we love or, or whatever. But or then because again, of us, right? yeah, or because yeah. of us, absolutely, yeah. that we are in for, we are exerting a force upon the universe that then responds in kind. Now, I personally believe in the power of manifestation, but it's it's a tiered sort of situation. My mm -hmm. desire meeting my uh, uh, fortitude and you know stubbornness and you know all the things I do think it aligns. I also believe in serendipity. It's a it's a confluence sure. for me. No, I I'm with you, but really, I mean, and some of the and, and some of it is the idea that you can kind of make certain types of things happen. I mean, that comes right out of studying placebos, right? I mean, it is placebos have a bad reputation in my in my in my opinion. They're um, they're great. I mean, give me a good placebo response any day. There's not that many side effects, right? <laughs> and I I know people who are just phenomenal about controlling their pain levels or whatever. Um, and that's just really documentable. But but it speaks to how much power we have over ourselves that we don't normally that we don't normally exercise. Put it that way. And so it's it's fascinating to me that for placebos, also for hypnotics. So I I spent some time. I, I, for about a year or two, I hypnotized people. It was part of this parapsychology thing, but I had to learn. I learned to hypnotize people so I could get them more receptive to certain suggestions that I wanted to make about, you know, the astral, whatever, the astral plane or whatever. Um, but what struck me, first of all, was how easy it was to do, and and I didn't. I just said they're they're screwing with me. These are people I know, and they're just screwing with me. And so 
vented. So early on, I, I took one person's arm and I kind of suggested it was anesthetic. It didn't have any feeling in it. And she's going, yeah, no. And I kind of touched it. I said, you see, you can't feel anything. She goes, yeah. I said, I want to stick a needle through it right now. She goes, I don't care. So I stuck a needle all the way through her arm, not through the middle, but, you know, put some skin up and just, and she didn't flinch. She did nothing, right? And I'm not, I'm not at all saying it's magical. I'm saying she was able to do that with her brain because I didn't do it. I mean, I, all I did was talk to her. I mean, I'm not touching anybody, right? I'm not doing any magnet thing. I'm just talking in a certain cadence that I had read about worked. And and after talking for just a few minutes, I could stick a needle through her arm and it didn't phase her. Yeah, that's the and deep so, space of the brain that is unbelievably yes. powerful. And the, the thing that I love about neuroscience and the brain is that the more we know, the less we know. It's just it's like a never-ending doorway with never-ending doors. Yes. No, no, that, we don't... I don't see... I don't foresee knowing everything anytime soon. No, and it's fantastic. It's such it a beautiful, fantastic. beautiful, wonderful thing. And that's the other thing about science is, is we spend a lot of our day saying, I don't know. And I just don't hear that enough from most people. Just, you know, because we're, by definition... We're doing these experiments because we don't know. Right. I, I want to know, and so we so we live in that world quite a bit. Yeah, you know about not knowing. But I just want to return that like placebos, hypnosis, and faith healing. Frankly, I put them all in the same category. What's to me was fascinating is that all of those require concern. In other words, even if it's a doctor giving you a pill or or a friend touching you on the head. For some reason, it's very difficult to mobilize these things that we can do from scratch. Often, usually, I think, it requires some other person saying, I will help you. I can get you to do this. I'll hypnotize you. I'll give you this pill. I'll touch you in this way that's going to heal you. Or I'll just even look at you intently over the television. But the point is, somehow, we can leverage that to do something we could have done without it. But... But psychologically, it boils down to just how social we are. We are an incredibly social species. And to me, that's partly reflected in how therapeutic it can be for just another person to care about your state. That's like the power of prayer, which I very much believe in. To know, you know, they've done a lot of studies on that. To know that yeah. so many... And they know it doesn't work unless the person kind of knows. But again, that could be used to dismiss it, but I'm really not trying to do that. I'm saying it, it highlights the power that we have and also highlights how truly interconnected we are in terms of how big a deal it is for us to be as social as we are is literally therapeutic to have someone else care about us i have a theory about oh there goes your connection can you still see me oh, i can yeah okay. but i froze you froze let me try okay. it. i'm gonna hang up again by the way thank you for indulging me so much <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. it's fun to talk to you it's fun um the, the, what you said there about the the need for others, like the need to know that um, that someone is preying on you in in my in my journey of of learning myself uh, and the world at large as I see it, um, I think that there is an intuitive nature to all of us that we do know when someone's thinking about us or that because to me, like you and I are the same person or we're part of the same. Ecosystem, you know, there's that grove of um, is it ash trees that that's all one big tree, but it presents oh, yeah. as a forest. Yeah. Um, I feel very much that about the human race, in that you know, you cut the arm off of one of us, and the other one of us feels it. 
in in a way, even if it's sublime. And so uh, I do I do think that we're all connected that way, and that things like prayer and uh, and the need for each other this time more than ever. I think that people are realizing, <clears throat> myself included, who thinks I'm an introvert, <laughs> and yet realizes how much even just sitting in a restaurant that's bustling, mm-hmm. how that is feeding me. Yeah. No, other people, and actually, I'm, I'm going to balk at whether or not it happens if you don't, if the person's not there. But, but to me, again, the power of just knowing other people are around and, and like, for lack of another word, being cared about or loved it's an extraordinary, I think, a physical effect on people that that goes that is underrated, but it comes out in these weird, quirky things of placebos and faith healing and and hypnosis. But it speaks to how important it is for people, how important other people are, basically. Right, and placebos work. They they've worked Absolutely. time and time again for sure. No, and they, I mean, because I was in a pharmacology department in graduate school, they became one of my favorite things to read about and study. And because back in the, back before, okay, I'll get in trouble, but before we had all this about informed consent, you could do some amazing stuff with placebos, tell people it's one thing and it'd be something else. And, and then look at what happened. And it was, it's extraordinary. These are the measurements you can make about reflex time, right? Give somebody a barbiturate, tell them it's amphetamine and they get faster. It's just remarkable. Again, today you wouldn't be able to do that. Just not that it was hurting anybody, but it's just yeah. The seventies yeah. were a very interesting time for uh, both the socio sociological experiments, psychiatry experiments, yeah. uh, medical experiments, and the fifties too. I think there was a, that whole well, yeah, MK that yes. whole MK Ultra thing was. But the MK Ultra brings me to another thing: is that the idea of conspiracies. You know, everyone. Who who poo pooed the idea that aliens could be among us, and then uh, and then you know the Pentagon's like, well, here's the thing, you know. <laughs> yeah. So the, how do we know, you know, and and to know anything, I feel is to know you know nothing, and it's exciting to enter the world from this, you know, new fawn getting one steps because everything is amazing and nothing is it's such a lovely place to well, live i guess i i mean i think it's closer than everything is but i again i do think we know stuff and it's just we have to be careful about what it is we know and what it is we don't and it doesn't mean that like you say just because we don't know something is true doesn't mean obviously that it's not and then some things are more likely than others i mean this is all like it's all about probabilities and so that's the other thing that's frustrating is so often uh, somebody will say something to me that's just, to me, a little nuts, and, and they go, yeah, but it's possible, right? And to scientists, that, that's not even a question, right? It's, it's probable. It's either probable and it's, and it's by how much, right? I mean, there's a probability that all of the air in this room, all of the molecules will, will go over into the top corner of the room and I'll start gasping for air. Right, but when I start guessing for error, that's nowhere near the top ten things I'm going to worry about. Right? It's because it's just incredibly low probability, and it probably won't happen not just in my lifetime, but in the lifetime of everybody on Earth until the end of the universe. That's how improbable it is. But you go, is it possible? 
again, that just means nothing to me. It just means you have to be asking the wrong question once you're asking that, right? And so that's part of though this this sense of they feel like they may well be right if 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 it's possible, and that's just not how to think about the world, in my opinion. It's not a useful way of thinking. There's you know some opinions are more informed than others. Some things are more probable than others. And it, that's different than an absolute knowledge, but it's not the same as everything being up in the air. Why do you, why do you think uh, knowledge and curiosity and science and you know, expertise uh, has been vilified so much over the past decade? Uh, I think it clashes into this other thing that we're inclined to do, right? Which is adv- which is to be an advocate for what you already believe. Mm-hmm. It's been people. And, so, and again, some of it's on scientists and other experts because the the truth or the facts, or whatever, however you want to say it, it, it shouldn't ever be used as a hammer. And that there are people who feel like they have been kind of beat up by facts in a way that's ugly. Um, I mean, again, in science, uh, often a, a rowdy group of facts would just kick the ass of my hypothesis and I just had to come to grips with it, right? But again, most people aren't used to that. And also, that's clearly not personal. As far as I know, nature has nothing against my career as a scientist. Right? So I take it not personally. But th- there's some pretty personal interactions of people using data. And, and, and even if they're right, they're, they're not using it to illuminate the situation. It's like your dad was trying to illuminate the situation, illuminate the issue with facts, as opposed to just taking it and beating it over the head with them. right? Mm-hmm. And that's, those are very different things. And some people, I think, have are responding to it, having felt brutalized by somebody who, you know, was using facts that way. And so I, I don't always succeed, but I try to avoid being that guy. But it's, it can be very frustrating sometimes because you do your best and they say, well, you're indoctrinated. So I come back to that because it's, it's really, you know, It is interesting, too. I mean, to be fair, there is the thing of, like, follow the money. Who's paying for the study? Who's paying for that? Bacon is good for you. Paid for by bacon. Bacon is terrible for you. Paid for by the the Broccoli Foundation. You know, what? so you do have to be aware, but that is, again, the strata of knowledge. Yeah, and it, yeah, but, and, yeah, no, you're, go ahead, I'm sorry, I didn't mean that. You didn't, no, that was, I don't know. (laughs) I have broccoli talking to me now, so it's good. <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> no, I, I shouldn't. I bristle a little bit about. I, I, you know, I see the logic of following the money, but often there's, often there's money. There's money in most things. It's sort of like one of the things that one of just a, a, it's a relatively minor issue, but I'm constantly struck by how much aspartame is vilified. This artificial sweetener. There's nothing about it, theoretically or by experiment, that suggests there's anything wrong with it. And yet, of all the artificial sweeteners, it seems to be the most vilified. But honestly, from a chemist's perspective, of all of the artificial, and a biologist's perspective, of all of them, it is the least likely to cause a problem ever. It is, just because of its structure, two amino acids, there's hardly any you have to take to be sweet. And so I'm struck by how this came to be. And, and frankly, this kind of thing, just like, you know, there's people outside of the United, there's people tweaking all of these kind of, you know, ideas. 
but people will sometimes say, well, who's, you know, who did that study or whatever. But honestly, from a scientist's point of view, when I read a study, I rarely look at who funded it. Sometimes I will because it'll it'll be it'll read suspicious. In other words, it's rare that somebody just makes up something from whole cloth and publishes it. They're generally massaging the data, and you can see that if you've written and reviewed a bunch of papers, you can see how they what they're doing. And because again, for the most part, scientists aren't going to just make something up, but they will market it. They'll mess with it, right? And and when it gets egregious. That I'll go with them. Who the hell? Who are these people, right? And and often it'll be, oh, I see, they're you know, shills. But for the most part, even if it's funded by a drug company, the data is there. That they, you can you can almost always just tell by reading the paper that this is a marginal effect, or you know, they, not clear they did this this particular control that would have you know made it go away. And so, um, you, so with the aspartame thing, for example, they act. There's this thing, well, you know, the artificial sweetener people, they want you to believe that. Whereas there's much more money in the sugar industry than there is in the artificial sweetener industry, right? If you want to talk about known mongers of misinformation, sugar, right? And so artificial sweeteners are not something sugar likes, right? So the point is... The money, if you just wanted to go by money, is probably the sugar industry is being who's tweaking again. They're not going to publish something that's just wrong, but anything that comes out that that looks bad for artificial sweeteners and aspartame in particular, because I would say it is the one that's probably least harmful to anything. But there's there's going to be money that just oh, let's, let's let's put this in this vegan's hands over here. Let's put this in this health website. Let's just like let's just make sure they all know what this is about. So the point is, even when follow the money, people pick the money they like. The cure for that is either to listen to somebody who knows the topic or, or learn how to and read the, the It's there. It's usually in the papers. Yeah. I try and really stay is. away from the papers these days. <laughs> well, is there hard? I mean, they really are written for other scientists. And so I, oh, no, those papers. I thought you meant newspapers. No, I like... Oh, no, I meant the research papers. Yeah, I like reading abstracts. I do. I Part of it for the challenge of trying to figure out what the hell's being said. But also, yeah. I, I just think... It's really exciting to see what people are coming up with. You yes. Know? Somebody has a no, theory and they're like, let's see if this is a real thing. <laughs> you know? Yeah. No, it, it, I, to me, it, it, it was, and, it, and it's because I still re- read a lot. But it, it, it's like if it was a privilege to, to be given and a green light to go interrogate nature, basically. I used to call it a conversation, but it's really not. I mean, we're just trying to hold something much larger than we are down and ask her questions and you know it's a whole art to that and, it, and it's not you can forget that <laughs> nature's just way bigger than than your question and so you have to that's why you have to be careful how you do an experiment but it's a, it's really kind of felt like a privilege to be able to do that i used to refer to them as, as a conversation with nature but in truth, it's more of an interrogation. And, 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 and what's upside down about it is we're interrogating something much bigger and more complicated than we are and trying to just like eke out you know, some slice of you know, data that, that will work for the next experiment. And, and, but it, honestly, it's a, I've, I always felt like and still, still, still feel like that it was a, it's a privilege to be able to do that because it takes a, it's expensive equipment. It takes you know, money and you have to kind of be trained a long time. It just drives me a little nuts because mostly scientists are, are, are in awe of what they study. I saw, a funny, I saw a funny Twitter that said, uh, 
I've never seen so many people get a, a virology, um, epidemiology, and a medical degree all at once in you know such a short period <laughs> of amount of time. No, the, the certainty of these. I, that's the thing that throws me the most is just the certainty that they have with these ideas. It's just, you know, yeah. and that you know it's bio weapons and, and and some of it, like like you say, I, I understand that they don't understand it because it's specialized knowledge. Yeah, and I it's scary. It's why, really scary. Yes, oh, absolutely. But it's just I don't. I you lose me when you first of all I don't believe the people who study them. And then, and then on top of that, you just make something up. You just make something up, or believe somebody who did. I mean, and that's you know, apparently people can't tell the difference between mm-hmm. something made up. But the truth is, you know, this virus. I mean, it's only about thousand nucleotides long. The whole genome. People all over the world have sequenced, and so we know every single base in that genome. I mean, the idea that that there's a bioweapon hidden in there, there's no place to hide. It's just the thing that strikes me too is some of the people that I I, I know that are really into this idea is that um, they're like oh well there were people working on noroviruses in China and therefore it means this I said well because there's like what five or six noroviruses and why wouldn't you and knowing that a pandemic is in all likelihood coming why wouldn't you take what you have rip it apart and rebuild it and see what happens I mean it seems like that would be the logical thing to do you know, people study them. I mean, there's no doubt that people study them for all the reasons you said that. Because again, it's sort of a matter of time when the next pandemic hits. Um, but it, there's several levels at which it's just sort of the whole thing's kind of ridiculous. First of all, this is a, a a very bad idea for a weapon, right? Unless you have your people have a cure or something right that's what i that's what i say too is i guess it's the boy there are so many more efficient ways to to cause a a global chaotic event than this (laughs) without hurting yourself i mean that's yeah that's deficiency yeah and maybe then they go to well it got out by accident but 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 again we know we know the sequence and it, it is First of all, there's there's not much motive to just make something like this as a weapon, and if you did, it would be very difficult to obscure that fact once people all over the world are sequencing it and looking exactly at it is, and they're comparing it to other viruses we already know. That's how they're trying to figure out where it came from. Right. So. I think that they, they, they point the finger at Bill Gates because of his... <laughs> I, I get into lengthy conversations on Facebook about this with people that I, I love dearly who, you know think that this is a big conspiracy with eugenics involved and all that. I said, well, I mean, technically, there's a lot of people on the planet, and it wouldn't hurt us to maybe chill that out a little bit, you know, but that, well, that, that's that, what, that gets that gets people very uh, freaked out very fast, you know, so. Well, yeah, no, it's not, it's, people don't like it when you say, well, that's the beauty of a pandemic. <laughs> the Thanos, that it, that's what I call the Thanos argument. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a nice. Yeah, I forgot about that. That's a, that's a nice reference because, but it, it, it and then truthfully, the flu does it every season. Sure, right? not to this extent. Sure. Well, not is, not this rapidly. Some, some economist somewhere has calculated how much money we save every year by calling the elderly herd with the flu, right? I mean, that, that's a, a, a pretty dark way of looking at it. Obviously. Absolutely. 
but but it's that's if you wanted to, that would be not hard to do and i suspect somebody's done it and just hadn't published it and the poor as well not just yes. the elderly but also yeah. the poor no the whole thing comorbid it's but it these things are and we're kind of overdue for i mean we were overdue in a we way we were uh, sure and and uh, again I, this is not to celebrate this at all trust me no it's still terrible it, but yeah. but i think a lot of people knew that this was coming yes and and it, and it, a lot of like so many things that aren't working very well is there's just kind of too many of us on the planet yeah which is a shame because i think this planet has the resources to handle its if you will children but we uh, <laughs> economics steps in and says oh mm-hmm. well let's tell the farmers to hold this grain in this silo and let's have them slaughter these cows because we can't deliver them to this person and yet then there's people starving and you know so it's this this gross imbalance that humanity is culpable for we have not handled ourselves in a way that is symbiotic with the planet we occupy and it's unfortunate And because yeah. of that, I think we end up in these situations. Yeah, and I'm just not sure we can. I mean, I mean, if everyone spread out evenly across the planet, maybe there's a calculation that says we could do this. But that's not how that's not how we're distributed, and it never will be. No, and, and there's so, parts of the planet that aren't habitable. I mean, it's just right. And so, but even the the logistics of growing enough food here and like getting it over there. It's not a. It's not a trivial. It's not trivial. It's not. It's not. There. Yeah. It's complicated. But I, I, I agree know? with you about it. It's, but I. I think it boils down to this. You know, I'm not sure we're sustainable. Honestly. I know. I we are. And I have said this before, it's super depressing. I mean, not in our lifetime, but that we are in the the next great extinction, of course. I mean. Yeah, that's no. And I don't know about our, our extinction, but we people humanity i mean humans yeah. beings yeah. yeah another 10 12 15,000 well, years maybe culture i, mean, I think <laughs> cultural extinction it could be in a few decades honestly yeah we've jumped the shark a few times but this, i think the species though <laughs> i suspect we'll just get knocked back to the stone age i mean that's you know, yeah isn't that, that an einstein quote uh how do you think uh world war three will be fought and his response was i don't know but i know that world war four will be fought with sticks and stones yeah that's a good and i that's that captures a lot of what, what we need to worry about yeah i was watching something on cnn the other night late and, and it was an interview and they were talking about and, they, and honestly this is one of these things where i i understand why people are put off by this kind of interview because they were a little bit giddy about how clean the air was and everything and, and i appreciate it as well but it's probably not the main thing you want to, you know. You know, anyway. But they 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 went on with that, and they made it clear that um, g- given right now the situation with so much shut down, so much less travel, the carbon emissions had gone down six percent, and they were like, again, kind of giddy about that. Whereas my response was really only six percent that's all we've done given what we're doing right now in terms of sheltering in place all over the damn world and then and then again in the similar kind of giddy voice there was yeah if we would just do this intentionally we could be halfway to the goal of the 2015 paris accords i'm going halfway (laughs) if we did this on purpose and so i'm just that is i kind of throw my hands i go okay i just try i'd like to have clean air and clean water 
as the cultural as the culture goes extinct, I would like clean air and clean water. The CO two footprint, I, I don't see what we're going to do about it. If, if now hardly makes a dent, that's incredible to me. I read that I, one of the, 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 the one of the major holes in the ozone has repaired itself. So that was supposed to happen. That's good. Yeah, so that's nice. Maybe more people will ride their bicycles and walk. Or you know yeah. what? I think they'll be. I think this has made a lot of people realize, like, oh, I can work from home and be maybe even more productive than for those yeah, who are lucky enough. Jobs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So maybe. No, I think that's right. There'll be changes that I think will be positive in that way. Sure. But no, but yeah, they, we're we're not going to kill the planet. Just oh no no every time it, it, anyone yeah we're yeah exactly <laughs> yeah we're uh, we are inconsequential to her majesty for sure I, and if you doubt that in any way look at a sidewalk of cement and see the grass growing up through it and yeah. you will realize that the earth gives two shits that we're here yeah no no she'll be fine she's abiding that. us currently but she gives two shits I think alright let's out of this, like, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I should. I don't want to. I mean, uh, you can just cut this out because no, I don't know any more about this than any. No, no, I just I love the conversation of it, and I don't either. I don't, but it's really fun for me to talk about, honestly. Okay. So, um, and darn it, I've been holed up for a long time, a couple months yeah. now. So, um, let's talk about the music. What? So you retired from being a research scientist, and and right. you said, hey. Let's take this brain and stick some music around it. Is that? I mean, you were always into music, though, correct? And you sort of set it yeah, aside. I started. Yeah, I started pl- playing, you know, guitar when I was I don't know, twelve, thirteen, and I've always sort of written songs. And then um, even in so even in all through high school, I had a, you know, I, like everyone, I had a rock and roll band in high school. Yeah. And then through college, and then even in graduate school, I, I, I sang. There's a friend of mine, uh, a woman, sang with me. He was regularly there were some there were some coffee shops in Cambridge that we would play at regularly, and and we got you know relatively well known locally. It was it was fun because I was in grad school. I I didn't spend the amount of time I do now, you know, working on songs and doing stuff. But um, it was still it was fun and satisfying. To, to be, you know, recognized by other musicians and stuff. It was fun. Um, so all the way up till I moved to San Francisco after graduate school, then I kind of stopped playing altogether. But mm. before that, I'd played more or less constantly from when I was 12 or 13 to uh, 23 or 24. I'm so happy you decided to get back into it. Rumors of Reason is the record you put out in 2013. Is that yes, I don't remember the date, but it... I should have done another one by now, but yeah, "Rumors of Reason" is the name of the CD. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and I was set to work on one now, but uh, the sheltering. Uh, maybe I can do it. I, I really enjoy performing live. Um, I never look forward to it. I I, I I end up going because I promised I would, but, but by the time it comes around, I, I'm questioning whether I should be playing at all. Why Why am I doing this? <laughs> but then. After the first song or two, and people, then I, and I, by the end, I'm just really kind of joyous that I, that it was fun, and and I think it, it serves to remind me and see this is how you know <laughs> how broken I am. I, I when, because I make up some things from make things up from scratch, and as you pointed out, some of them are odd, right? When 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 a room full of people I don't know 
seem to get it. I, I'm just like reassured in a way that would be hard to do otherwise that we are the same species. And again, it's the social thing. I feel like, oh, thank you. I, I hope you recognize that, but I was not. Right? I mean, I got songs about, you know, coming home to a, a, a weirdly naked blue woman in oil or being shot out of a cannon. But for the most part, people are just, yeah, let's go. I'm going with you. Let's go. Yeah, I, I call that I, communion. Yeah, I find that so nice. Yeah, I call that the communion of music. It's a, yes. when, as a performer myself, that's that there's nothing like it. And I don't I don't know that that there's very many artists alive who don't get freaked out before they go on and then somewhere John Prine is a great example, you know, and then once he's on that stage it's it's oh, it, that he's so fluid up there. Oh, so great. Sad uh, he's one of the few I I got to see when I when I was younger and um a couple of times and he his, his music is just wonderful of course but the way he was on stage it just it was so authentic and you just really walked away thinking you knew him that he was genuinely that guy yeah I suspect he was yeah I, I do too and and honestly like I said before watching you perform and hearing your songs uh the python-esque prine-esque cohen-esque <laughs> mixture it was just it was really the best word I could come up with was delightful it was just oh. delightful and that's, that's lovely for the audience that communion back from the audience back to you you know it's that no it does it absolutely works that way communion is a good term for it because it, it absolutely and that's and for some reason I cannot keep it in my heart I, I I'm always oh god and then it always I've got to somehow remember this thing of that it will be a communion, but for some reason, I, you know, I, I lose it. And but then, it's 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 a wonderful experience. It really is. I suppose that it's that way every time, and so maybe that's the same thing with the people who give birth that they forget what the torture is <laughs> to put the baby out. That you know, we we do these things and we love them and we forget the the fear and and but the fear is part of the the joy ride. You know. Yeah, and it, yeah, and so. I, and you get locked in, I mean, because, you know, was it, and that's how I feel like it. Often I, I, I go because I, you know, I don't want to be the guy who didn't show up when he's right. Right. So, so maybe it's not exactly like I want a baby, but the point is you, I feel committed to like <laughs> follow through on this thing I've put in motion. Yeah, I think people who are having babies probably feel that way too. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, oh, well, I'm committed. <laughs> yeah, I got to go the whole way from here. <laughs> Chauncey, how can people find you? Um, well, I'm on Facebook, you know, my Chauncey Bowers. I have a website, chaunceybowers.com. Yes. And uh, my CDs on there, they can songs and see if they like them. They're available on all these digital places. Sure, and I'll put links on heyhumanpodcast.com so that people can find you quite easily. Okay, that would be good. And then there's, and there's also songs live. There's videos on the website of me playing songs that are not on the CD live because I have a lot of those now that I need, need to get. In fact, some of the songs that people like the most are not on CD because I have to do a live performance. They, some of these songs, it's sort of like stand-up. Like, it's the communion, it's the feedback, right? And for funny songs, that has to be there. For other songs, you don't, you know, you can just play in a studio. But Sounds like a good reason to do a live CD. Yes, no, I, that is absolutely the reason that I, you know, I need to get on it. I yeah. Do, Maybe know, live, a live CD recorded at Wine and Song. Yeah, that could, no, we, Brad and I kicked it around, so I, 
it's just I have not done it before, so I have this fear of all things I haven't done. So. Chelsea, what a lovely conversation. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. It's it's really good to see you. Hopefully we will, when we can leave the house, uh, run into you. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe we'll get to share a stage even and, you know, perform together. That'd be great. That would be really fun. Bye, everybody. Thank you. Rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. Stay safe. Love you. Bye.